Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. If Ireland went for a 7-1 split, yes. who would you put as the one? Oh, great question. Luke McGrath. I'd put John Cooney. Then, yeah. then again, I've been calling for John Cooney to be picked for yeah, five years. Yeah, goal kicker. Um, uh, Lots of other challenges as well. <laughs> Sorry. Doki, uh, Doki Martin is the Cooney's better only than Doki, other though. alternative. But yeah, Cooney's better than Doki. It's a good, uh, it's a good Joey question. Carberry Left field question. Or possibly called... Joey Carberry. Yeah. Finally get to play Joey at scrum, scrum half. half. And fullback. His two best positions. <laughs> or Madzer. Call back Madzer back out of retirement. So it's really important to have a goal kicker on your bench in case your, your frontline goal kicker goes down. Unless you have a Farrell Ford access where your second best goal kicker is already on the pitch. Conor Murray's goal kicker. Correct. Mm. So we do have two goal kickers. Maybe just play Conor on the bench. Just He's Murray. so fucking slow though these yeah. days. He, All right, used, so he used to be perfect. Who's our sixth forward then in this bizarre scenario? Uh, seventh. Seventh forward, sorry. Seventh forward. Who was Hendo. Hendo, yeah. yeah. Where are we strongest? You know? Uh, John Hodden is injured now, so we can't have a replacement. Hodden's getting his finger repaired. Or you could pick Will Connors and give yourself a very well, different defensive yeah. makeup. Change your whole back row, though. That's yeah. why I was thinking of Hodden or Connors or yeah, Penny. Yeah. Maybe or, Penny. You can play Penny as a, as a I, I pick I Will. I go for Will. Yeah, but you can play Penny as a nine. Still no Ulsterman. No. Still no Ulsterman. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we have gone with a 6-2 split. So, uh, James Ryan. The Ryan line is closed. <laughs> Ryan line is closed. I was surprised, but as I just said to you uh, a little bit earlier, off camera, um, that I don't mind. Like, that's... that's it's a good... Selection when you're when you're strong, like we're strong at um, in the second row, and it means leaving good players out in Hendo and leaving good players on the bench, and it does reward for him because Joe McCarthy's been the best second row in the last four months, and he's completely played his way into the team at, at Henderson's expense. Really, you know, Henderson's dropping out. It's like Hendo must have Hendo's about eighty caps. 70, 77, 78, something like that. So it's a it's a tough loss for Hendel to drop out altogether. It's tough on James Ryan to to fall out of the starting 15. But it shows that Irish second row stocks are in very uh healthy nick. And it also shows a good selection. You, he is he is rewarding um a player in really good form and and obviously McCarthy has sort of more than form on his side. He has like just huge talent. It's not a case of not a case of a guy who's who's in uh, a rare form that he's never shown before in his life. He's like, oh, this guy's a twenty-two-year-old who's playing. Like, considering they're the second best team in the world, 
and were the best team in the world for more than a year, like officially in the rankings wise. Um, like we're really high caliber set of players, and he's been the best forward in Ireland since the World Cup. Bar nobody, including Doris. Yeah, I suppose I was kind of uh I don't know if dismissive is quite the word, but pretty underestimating no, a few yeah, non believer. But even, even as recently <laughs> heretical, correct, as a few weeks ago. And um I thought McCarthy had his best game of the season against Leicester. Leicester. But like has has played an awful lot of rugby. And like has, has played himself onto the team. So I you know, when you when you look at the the rest of it, like Crowley and Nash deserve to get picked. Uh so Crowley has played better than all the other out halves, without a doubt. But he's not Johnny Sexton. So there's there's kind of I think there's there's a sort of a reaction to Sexton gone, which is sort of to I, I think the general narrative is that like when Sexton was there, um and particularly in his in his mid to late thirties, people were like, oh, "I don't see the point. Of why are they picking Sexton? Sure, he's not going to be at the next World Cup." And then when we get there, the fella who should be playing won't have any experience. And lo and behold, Sexton played to the ripe old age of thirty eight. Uh, and now that he's gone, you're sort of going, "Oh, we're missing Johnny Sexton." And you're like, <laughs> "Come on now, which which communal narrative are we having?" And there's obviously more angles to it th- than just one. Um, so I'm very excited to see Crowley play. I think he'll he'll add he, he brings something completely different to Ireland, which I don't think has really been considered. I think that everything is seen through the the sexton shaped void that is at the heart of the number ten position. Well, it's the first team. game since Sexton's retired, so I understand that. Oh yeah, people seeing like the the big loss. He he's been there for he had been there for so long. Such a dominant player for us, like one of Ireland's really top two greatest players of all time. Um, and I too am very excited because there's a maybe like looking into the unknown with Jack Crowley, even though we've I've seen I'd say I've seen pretty much every game he's played because I watched the Immersion Ireland games on the stream. Uh, I'd say, I'd say I've seen almost every game he's played for Munster. Um, I saw him for the twenties. When I say every game he's played, obviously like every representative game, and a really exciting player. Uh, so yeah, but he hasn't uh, played in the Six Nations before, and and playing away in France is the toughest game in the Six Nations. So yeah, just that that end of it of not knowing quite what we're going to get. Is um, is exciting, and again, the the general consensus seemed to be in at the beginning of the week that oh, I'm sure by the time Thursday evening or Friday comes around, like I'll be really excited for the Six Nations. But nah, you know, at the moment, not as excited. Uh, seem to be, I guess, seeing it through the prism of the World Cup. You know, where do we start doing in four years? You know, wh- where when do we start preparing for four years' time and um then so when the team got announced, I kind of thought to myself, geez, like, you know, the squad is 34 names, there's no real surprises. But then when I saw the team, I thought to myself, there's enough change in there for it to be for it to be different. Like Calvin Nash gets his opportunity, which is deserved. I think everybody's picked on form. I guess the thing that um stands out to me, I'm optimistic about Ireland's chances. 
My fear for Ireland is that across the back line from 11, 12, 13, 14, it's pretty slow compared to what France are. Like Bundy, we'll see how fit he is. He was really fit in the World Cup. He was outstanding. Is he as fit as he was then? I doubt it. Uh, Robbie Henshaw isn't fast. He's, he's definitely fitter. Now, Robbie Henshaw is a test match animal. James Lowe is back and he's sharp, but he's not an absolute flyer. And Calvin Nash is sharp, but again, like, isn't Robert Balakun, isn't an absolute flying machine. And that's kind of, that's where I think the risk is for Ireland, is that they might just get outpaced, particularly with all the backs playing 80 minutes. But I, I kind of put a sprawl, small probability on that. Um, I do think it's a very strong pack, very strong pack bench. Like, if you look at the, 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 pack squad or this like i don't know what you call that but like the the starting the forwards say between the starting eight and the 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 You'll return six it's <laughs> <laughs> quite innovative really um see if we can copyright that uh but i think of the forwards as starting eight anyway like the back three is is really strong um which way do you use the substitutions like assuming no injuries and you're going to so you can you can six six forwards yeah you can pre you can roll them out as you as you would plan i think omani plays max 50 i i kind of expect doris to move to seven and for van der Fleer to come off for jack conan okay and i expect Joe McCarthy to come off on, I don't know, 55 to 60 for James Ryan, all things being equal. So I think Ty Byrne plays all of it. I think Killen Doris plays all of it. And I think in the front row, Porter plays 70 plus. I think Sheehan plays probably 55. And Ty plays probably just on 60. Yeah, and who becomes captain if a man goes off relatively early? That's a good question. Um, I think Ty Byrne. Okay. Because I think I agree with you. I think O'Mahony, like O'Mahony has been the sub that uh, has been the back row that Farrell has subbed off um, ever since Farrell took over. Like he's he's played 80 minutes twice in each season in the last three seasons for Ireland. And he's played... Almost, you know, most of our games, I think it's 20, 21 games. And I think he's finished six of them. So he's the guy that Farrell takes off. And I don't see that changing. So I thought that he would, that's why I thought James Ryan would be named in the squad and that Ryan would become captain when Peter O'Mahony, sorry, in the, in the starting lineup. So that, Ryan would become captain when Peter O'Mahony went off, but it pro- like it probably will be Tyg Byrne uh, becoming captain when if O'Mahony goes off after um, say like 55, 53 minutes, which isn't that's not particularly early for him either. You know, he he's normally doesn't go into like sixty odd, sixty plus minutes. My feeling would be that uh, Ryan will end up being captain. Tyg Furlong has also been Ireland captain, uh, but I, yeah, only. We- only once. I don't really see it necessarily. Um, I, my feeling is that um, because South Africa won three games in a row by a point, mm-hmm. as I keep saying, 
everyone thinks that everything they've ever done is a brilliant mm-hmm. uh, masterwork. I think one of the things that you saw them do during the World Cup was see Khaleesi came off very early in the yeah. start of the second halves, despite the fact that he's obviously a very inspirational leader. So I would say he has almost normalized the taking off your captain thing. Whereas when Sam Kane would come off, everybody would be like, it's a big creep, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, they won't have to worry about that anymore because he won't be their bloody captain for much longer. Um, so I think uh, I think the flip side of that is the rest of the, the back line is, and you mentioned it last week, you expect that Jack Crowley would be able to play 80 minutes because... Like, he's 24. Yeah. And he's tough. I sort of expect pretty much all the backs to play 80 minutes. Yeah. I don't think he's he's waiting to bring Frawley on for some tactical revelation or for some change-up that he wants to make. I think he's gone, Frawley covers, between Frawley and Gibbo, they cover all the positions. Like Gibbo will be going on the wing. Yeah. He already did against Scotland. He as played he did, half the game he, against Scotland. As he did against Scotland. And he's, he's quick enough and fit enough to do it. Um, Frawley's coming on to I take a 60-meter penalty to win it. <laughs> yeah, oh, pretty much. Um, and I also, I do wonder, basically, if, if, if Ireland had better backs available to him, or more better backs available to him, would he have gone 6-2? So, I, you know, with Ringrose is out, Hansen's out, uh, like who's Jimmy who's O'Brien the next back? Out. Jimmy O'Brien is out. Like who's is, is, is does anybody else put their hand up with their performances this season and demand inclusion in the team? And you got to say no. Um, so then, whereas you look at the guys who are the sub for the back five and with Ryan Baird and Conan, it's it's a huge area of strength, and it. Like it allows you, I don't know what it allows you to do. I mean, because they play a particular way, go full out, like stuff that you're going to do in an interna- international match anyway. Um, but arguably, you're finishing stronger than you started. Oh, yeah. Because I, you're, bringing, you're bringing that freshness. So it, it isn't kind of that concern. And always say, like, oh, the French have big men. But you're like, the French say the South Africans have big men. Like, I think everybody says everyone has big men. Um, it's a very strong set of forwards. The French side, on the other hand, I don't think it's the best side he could have selected. Yeah, I'm curious about this. They have picked the Paul... Um, Gabrielac. Yeah, and Paul, other Paul. Valemsa. Yeah, who missed the World Cup. And then the the second row on the bench coming in for Taufa Fenua is Tuilagi. The... Paso Tuilagi. Yeah. That's what I heard anyway. So uh, who the fuck's going to lift these guys? They're all fucking... Like... They all lift each other. <laughs> It's a human way. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. That we're going to rely on Olivon an awful lot. Now, Aldred is a good uh, back row line-out player, but a good back row line-out player in the way that Jack Conan is, in that you know he's very capable in, in a structured line-out of, of winning his own ball. But Olivon is Olivon's a brilliant line-out player by all standards. Kroos is, again, sort of a capable line-out player in a structured line-out, but they're just going to throw to Olivon all the time. Absolutely. Like Olivon is so Olivon is a legit six seven. Um and a really great athlete in terms of a great jump and a great handler. So France ha- France do that. Like the last time we played France, they just threw the Wokey all the time. They'll throw to one guy. You know, they they don't they don't mix their line it up as much as Ireland do. And they just throw to their most talented spring heeled jumper time after time after time. So 
Gabrielag is a really surprising inclusion for me. He hasn't played since 2019 in the World Cup when he wasn't first choice. He was playing the sort of the second second rate teams in in his group. Also, like m- most of his games, he lost when he played for France, and I think he is like I, I was just surprised to see him to see him in there. I'm surprised to see M- Moafana picked on the wing. Moafana is not a try scorer. I, d- I did some, I did did some of my own research, <laughs> but because uh, I thought when he played against us last season instead of Dante, I was like, like that's the weak link in the team, and he was. And now they picked him out of position. Now he he has played well at centre for Bordeaux, but they picked him out of position on the wing, and he scored eight tries in the last three seasons uh, for all his teams. Now he's played a lot of games. Like, He's played like 27 games in his two full seasons and roughly half of that this season. But they left out Mattis LaBelle. So they've, those guys are off to lose. So LaBelle is only one year older than them, plays wing all the time, and has scored 27 tries in the last like 71, 74 games, whereas Mofan has scored eight. They have almost exactly the same number of minutes played, almost exactly the same number of starts in the top 14. And you're going like, LaBelle is... R- really sharp scores basically basically 10 or 11 tries a season every season he plays and he's a winger so Galtier has said oh we want Moafana be you know because this is going to be a fight and we looked at what he can bring in terms of his aggression and his diligence and work rate compared to just outright speed and that's what we've gone for but to be to be honest I, I'm happier to see him against us than I would have been LaBelle much happier. Um, Kroos, is a, Kroos is a good player. Like, he's not a... He's he's a glue player rather than, like, Dave Alder, who's a superstar, and Olivon, who, you know, an incredible athlete and has been captain France, and basically, you know, is a superstar as well. And then Kroos is more of a, a glue player, but he is good. Like, his, he performed really well against the All Blacks in the first game of the World Cup. I think... I think that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, won the games World Cup. He was super in. And Willem says very hard hitting player. Malvac is an unbelievable beast. So yeah, they do have a lot of big men. Like Malvac is huge. He's the same size as John Schmidt was. You know, you think big hooker, 115, 116 kilo. Malvac is like 124 kilos. <laughs> I don't know where he puts it all. He doesn't look that big. But normally the French lie about their weights. Like they used to lie about. You know, this fellow Leon Nale is 113 kilos, yeah, with his, you know, one tower scale, exactly. Um, I think it's a strong French front row. Um, always think with Williams, it, it depends how fit he is, yeah, because um, he is he's a big, he's, he's a big unit, like he's, he's he carries a tractor player, yeah, he carries, um, he carries some fat, like, and. I think, yeah, the back row, I think it lacks a little bit of dynamism compared to previous French back rows, uh, which is good for Ireland because, like I said, speed speed is my concern. Uh, like Dante, while he's a very powerful carrier, is like it's a good matchup with Aki. Keo Fiku um, has been around for a long time, so he's a good matchup for Robbie. Mm. Um, 
Penno's a bad and it's matchup really for everyone. Like Penno, you know, but I, I think if I look at the three musketeers of uh, Penno, Entomac, and Dupont, there's only one of them playing. Aramis. So it's, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's kind of, I, I don't know, it's encouraging for Ireland. I'm surprised Ireland are at three-point underdogs, I have to say. Um, I think there's a sort of a view that because the French teams are going very well uh, in in Europe and like France is the strongest league, that I kind of think that's what's being reflected in, in the expectations for the two team. But the trick for, the, the problem for France, the challenge for France is that you can only ever pick 15 guys to start. And as good and all as your bench is, you can only ever have maximum 15 guys on the pitch. So I, I don't know if that French 15 is significantly better than the Irish 15. No, but when they turn out in France, they seem to like grow another leg. When they played us two years ago in the game in which Joey Carberry was... Starting, yeah. Yeah, like they were better than they were when they played us in Lansdowne Road. Even though yeah. Lansdowne Road, like that was a very good French team. Um, so I think I, I think the bookies are generally right. If I would have said, yeah, I would have said sort of France by two. It's going to be a tight game and it'll be decided in the, in the last, like, when I say 15 minutes, probably even the last 10 minutes. That's why it's important to have like a really strong bench. Really strong bench. It's 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 a very exciting venue. The fact that it's in Marseille, I'm delighted that we're going to it. Um, I'm amazed that I like, I didn't book it as soon as I saw it. I think with the World Cup coming up, all my considerations were about you know getting World Cup tickets, which matches do you go over to arrange and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the the natural hangover after the World Cup, where you're like, ooh, um, but like playing playing in the south of France. I've never been in the velodrome before, but like it's a it's a soccer stadium, so there's there's no athletics track. Uh, the pitch dimensions are going to be pretty small for a rugby field, and it's it seems to be quite steep, so the crowd is going to be right on top. I have gone to a Friday night match in the Six Nations in Cardiff. It was it was deadly. Like Cardiff is a great ground anyway, but. Um, there's still enough of a novelty about Friday night matches that they're really exciting. They, they, they bring like brilliant atmosphere. And I think particularly on a Friday at nine o'clock compared to a Saturday at nine o'clock, I think on a Saturday at nine o'clock, there's, there's a bit of lispic dac, whereas on a Friday, like you've, you finish the week, there is that excitement all the way through the Friday and you've got the weekend ahead and it's, it's not. It's not quite. Un, un, it's, it's certainly not unique because you know I think they do it every year, every second year. But it's it's certainly enough of a novelty, and like Marseille is a good size for a rugby town for a rugby match. Like you, you go to London, you go to Paris. You'll know matches are on in Paris. You'll see people walking around in pockets because the tourists tend to stay in the same places, um, and obviously. The Stade de France, you need to get in the trains. So when you get on the train station, everybody goes out. But when you're coming back, like that fragments very quickly. Whereas in Marseille, it's a smaller town. Mm. Like you'll know tomorrow in Marseille, there's a match on. People, people are going to be there. People are going to be coming in all day, all afternoon from wherever in France, predominantly, but also Ireland, um, and walking down towards the velodrome because 
you know, it's two, three, four kilometers away from where you're going to be drinking, eating, staying. Yeah, uh, it's not in so a different county. Like, yeah, yeah. so making a miss. It's it's I pretty have, funky. It's deadly. I have a question. <clears throat> there has been some speculation uh, on other podcasts that I listen to about how France might um, vary it up, change things. I think O'Gara said something along the lines of they might be a bit freed after the World Cup. And I was watching a very bad TV program where uh, Fabien Galtier was asked to say the most fucking bullshit French kind of thing to the, introduce his team. He's like, oh, yes, it's about the parabola and the, the, the carousel and all this bullshit about it. I'm talking about the terrible Netflix thing, obviously. And I was like, this is the team that like kicks the most and has like bone crunching 130, 140 kilo props. And he's talking about the fucking parabola. Like this French team is going to like grind us up front and kick the ball down and then have its mad fast wingers. I'm, I'm, yeah. Like, I'm, wait, wait. I have no problem with it. Like, but they're not, they're not to lose. No, they're not 40 all points per game. And they're not like, the Didier Campervero try from the end of the world stuff either. No, I agree. They're not. Dante is a very physical player, a hell of a difficult player to play against. Like who, to uh, to a large extent, don't, like like a really good ball carrying twelve. It's a really dominant feature of your attack. You know, Aki was Jamie Roberts was a long time ago. Once you get a guy who can get you front foot ball all the time, you're going to give him the ball. Like getting on the front foot, especially in winter rugby, it's the most important thing in the game. They do kick out of their own half all the time. Ramos kicks really well. Um, Jalabert is a great runner. I don't know how he's going to play. Uh, like in his quarterfinal, like it was like watching Phil Bennett. Now he made no decisions on the ball whatsoever but he beat about eight players by sidestepping them uh, but that was because DuPont ran the game for him even at with his Phantom of the Opera mask on and, and sort of playing injured well not sort of playing injured he's still the dominant force um, so with this with this side with Luku and Moafana Jalabert and Penno with that big Bordeaux influx and Bordeaux played great rugby but I, I think Dante, in a sort of positive way for France, gets in the way of that. Like I think they will give him the ball a lot, and and it will be a confrontational game. Yeah, I just to articulate my point better. I think they're a really good team, and it's not like I'm saying they're boring. But like it's pace and power rather than jouer jouer. Yeah, they're not. It's not going to be. Especially without Dupont, who's especially without like Dupont makes Dupont makes so many offloads, and like but in fairness, and that Toulouse team makes so many offloads. That's what I would consider as you as you a literally unstructured play, like somebody holds you in the tackle, and instead of going okay, I'll go down with Rook, to just always fucking always pass or offload out of those contacts. Doesn't matter if they're going backwards, you know, they'll just move the ball away. So no, I, I think it won't be like that. Like La Rochelle don't play like that. I think you got you got to play to your players. I, it, you know, it's 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 a constant conversation in coaching. Is 
do you have a style and then get your players to play it or do you have players and get them to do what they're best at and cover up their weaknesses and like for me doubtless it's the latter you have to ask your players what they're best so like like they've got Fiku and Dante in the midfield right neither of whom are flyers both of whom are physical and strong both of whom are experienced they've got Cross Olivant Cross Olivant and Aldred in their back row none of whom are flyers all of whom are good footballers experienced uh, strong big guys and and like and they don't have DuPont like now Luke is a very good breaker at nine but like international rugby is very different I'm kind of curious now I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the full contact and I, I haven't seen all of it but like you've been unstinting in your uh, disparagement of it so why so I know you, you were kind of saying by the numbers in the like what, what expectation did you have or what were you hoping to see I expected it to be like or? this frankly and it's exactly like I thought it was going to be which is following a formula that's made to generate like content out of like, sporting uh, brands that is all it is to me and the most annoying part of this formula is the constant like contrived narrativizing and never ever showing you anything that you have to interpret yourself it's just constantly telling you what to think at all times because it is made for people who have no fucking interest in rugby and people will claim that this is you know good to grow the game and get people interested in it's not it's another paywall to it's it's just box-to-box productions who made match point who made drive to survive and he made this and he probably made the shit fifa film about the world cup it's just absolute garbage wallpaper tv for people who aren't interested in the sport now you can say it's getting more people interested in the sport do you know what gets more people interested in the sport watching the sport and you know what keeps even more people interested in the sport keeping that sport on free-to-air tv right Growing the game is about watching the game. To grow the game, you have to give something. You have to give something to people for them to take it. You're not giving them anything if you're charging them 15 euros a month for a Netflix subscription. It's nothing. And there's also, I'm like, I just want to go in on this one bit where, what's his name? The Italian. Negri. Negri. Who seems like a nice fella. Yeah. Uh, And like comes across very well. But like, there's a bit now where he's having a conversation with who I presume is his real like girlfriend. And he's like, She's the person who I'm probably going to spend my life with. He's like, mate, just say you're going to spend. Like, it's from fucking this is Essex or this is Chelsea or whatever. It is like boiler. You know the way in every reality TV show in America, they do the thing where they show you the bit that happened before the break, just after the break. Like, it's a total formula. This is the same thing. It's garbage. Well, no, you know, you're fucking free to like it, obviously. But like... Everyone is pulling their punches. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like whenever I, I'm like, people are like kind of pulling their punches, being like, oh, yeah, you know, it's not great, but I guess it's for people who aren't interested in sport. And it's like, okay, even if it wasn't for, if it was for people who aren't interested in sport, it could still be good, right? There's no showing in this. It's all telling. Here's what you're supposed to think. These are the, these are the storylines of the Six Nations. There's no showing at all. There's no, and, okay, there's no so visual I, information I you, that isn't I, in support of a constructed narrative. I asked you then, I suppose, what did you expect? And you told me exactly what you expected. So maybe I should have rephrased. Well, it was good to get the answer. What did you hope for? Essentially, when you read a sports person's autobiography, you usually understand that they're going to be garbage books, but there'll be a couple of like unguarded moments that get past an editor or someone will say something that's candid and they reveal a lot more about themselves than they intend to. I thought there might be some of that. I thought you might see 
more scenes of lads training and just being like, what are they doing in the gym? What are they doing in the training session? I thought the most, maybe the most revealing thing in the bits that I did watch was like, my fucking Finn Russell is just as, as like, as in love with himself as he thought he was. And like the Scots, I, I thought the, the best, the best bit of the first couple of episodes was just like, um, Gregor Townsend going into the Scots after they beat England and they're so fucking happy themselves. And he goes, that was fucking shit. You were rubbish. And it's like, that that was that was so there was a few bits, but again, it's there's, there's such fleeting moments of like, oh, they actually let some honesty sneak out. Yeah, it's like do you remember in Richie McCaw's over which I I thought I guess you know he is our Twitter account now, <laughs> uh, which uh, I thought was better than you thought it was, but it came across as like he was quite, I wouldn't say disparaging about Pocock, but I expected him to be like bland Richie, like. Uh, and he was, he was there, he was, he was like, he didn't, he wasn't, uh, like he was really, uh, congratulatory or uh, acclaimed how good Dusitoire was. And then in Pocock, which was just like, oh yeah, not the I, same at no, all. I, 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 um, I like McCaw's book. So I, maybe, I. I thought it was good. I think the things about McCaw's book that stood out for me were exactly the Pocock thing, kind of like O'Driscoll. And even when like the All Blacks name like the best 15 and like McCaw and Carter in particular, O'Driscoll's never in it, mm. ever. Johnny Wilkinson's in it. And yeah. like sometimes they pick Johnny Wilkinson at, at, at center. Yeah. And pick Dan Carter. Like if, if McCaw's picking it, Carter's at 10 and Wilkinson's at 12 and O'Driscoll is never in it. Yeah. And you're sort of going, wow, like, I mean, that's that's kind of speaking volumes here. Yeah, I thought so. Um, and we and, met McCaw and, he, and he's thi- actually like quite honest and blunt in in conversation. You yeah. Know, he's not, he's not a, like, he's not a, a real, like, hail fellow well-met former international Hugo McNeil type, you know. Um, but he'll, he'll talk to you, which Hugo yeah. McNeil won't. Um, <laughs> And I, but I, I guess it's it's that there's a lot more candid in McCaw's book, which makes it interesting. I think your explanation is very good. Like I, I've only watched the two episodes, the first two episodes, just you know through time pressure or availability or whatever, rather than oh, I'm not going to watch the rest of it. Like I haven't got to the Irish bit. I, and I'm probably more charitable towards. Well, I'm certainly more charitable towards it, but you know, probably a better. Um, I thought that the clip where they got Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg looking back up at Townsend spoke volumes for both sides. It it sort of it spoke to Townsend missing the mark, I felt, with the leaders of his team and kind of getting his messaging and Kind of feeling obliged to say something, but not really understanding how to how to hit the mark. And I thought that it showed probably the limited ambition of certainly to my mind the limited ambition of the Scottish team. That if after one match they they'd won at Twickenham, and to be honest, the season was already a success. And you go, you're never gonna like you guys aren't gonna win a Grand Slam because you're so fucking pleased at yourself for beating a fairly average England team uh, at home, albeit. Like, how are you going to beat Ireland and France? How, like, you know, you're definitely going to beat Wales, even. Like, a not particularly good Welsh team. Um, I thought Kieran Crowley came across better than I expected him to do. Um, gets frustrated. I think the thing that 
that hit me the most was just how physical and aggressive international rugby was. And I saw Dennis Walsh doing some hand ring an article, and I was just like, ah, for fuck's sake, like that 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 sailed. Like this is why people watch the fucking game. Like world rugby, to my mind, have done a very good job taking out the high shots, taking out the cheap shots, putting stuff on. Like you can't just come from behind and clock somebody. Like I'm, I was probably near the end of my career watching a match where. So what are we talking about? We're talking about like maybe 10, 10, 10 years ago where Andrew Hoare was oh, playing for New Zealand. Punched Bradley Davis in the back Wales. of the head. Bradley Davis was like, Andrew Hoare was behind Bradley Davis. He completely blindsided him. Like completely. It's huge cheap Massive That's cheap exactly shot. what I was thinking of as well. And I'm there going, he would be banned for six months if he did that. Yeah. There is no fucking way he could get away with that now. And that's not that long ago. So the game has really changed. But the fact is, it is... And we, we talked about this. We talked about like the, the stats that the sports scientists look like look at in international rugby and the physicality. And you're kind of going, of course they're talking like that. Like it's kind of unnatural. These guys are huge and they're going out to beat the shit out of each other. Like to, to the extent that the guy who is the biggest. So you see Negri get into the game and how involved he is. And you're going, like, it's like it's the physicality. Like it's it's so obvious to say it, but like that's what differentiates him from the next guy is like he's got the size he's got the football ability but like the football ability is kind of like it's an added extra to the fact that he is just willing to and, and able to impose on and you go you have to get up for the match like that because you got a guy like Gensh who's like kind of like a charming loose cannon you know um, and they don't show the looseness but like you know he talks enough um, about his background that you go like he is a loose cannon you know like and you don't see the snarling but certainly in the second episode like the snarling goading physical Genj you see him a bit in, in the training sessions absolutely mill somebody with the tackle back and you go like you're left under no illusion like that that's a big hit because you can hear the impact you can see how much the guy travels and you go you know he's braced for it and you're going they're doing that against each other like for 80 minutes they're just beating the absolute crap out of each other and that element of physicality did come across. Now, it's it's only a single angle. So you, as you say, like the, there has to be a bit of, sorry, what, what does there have to be? There has to be a bit of narrativization. There has to be a bit of show to it rather than just tell, 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 where you kind of put it in. I think to a certain extent there was with Negri when he talked about um, just losing his edge. Um that to me you're sort of going, but like you have to be on edge to play international rugby, like at, at that at that level, like that that demands. So it's quite incredible, I suppose. The bit then that you're going, like Johnny Sexton's still playing that at 38, like that that's un. <laughs> like if you if you if you want to take the tell bit, you just sort of think to yourself, what sort of ability and mental, what sort of footballing ability and mental fortitude and resilience and competitiveness do Johnny Sexton have to be able to do that in his late 30s? against all these guys where he's the most targeted player. Like, it's, that, that's quite incredible. It's pretty much 40, like, 38 is 40. Yeah. You know, early 40s. Now, I was watching a J4's game at the weekend, and frankly, I wouldn't even be up for playing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, fa- the best sporting documentary that I ever saw was Hoop Dreams, uh, which is very unstructured with no imposed narrative and just follow them over a much longer period of time. Uh, I would rate Living With Lions as... A brilliant sporting documentary. There's, I can't remember what the name of the documentary is, but 
um, it's about the All Blacks tour of Britain and Ireland in uh, 1989. We have it might be called like Balls Out or something sort of. That's really interesting. Uh, because again, because they, there is no imposed narrative. But I think I'm using your words because it makes an awful lot of sense. But it's literally just a camera crew following them around, and and then a- afterwards somebody edits it and goes, "Well, we'll we'll put in this bit and we'll put in that bit because it helps to tell a story." And like to an extent, that is an imposed. There's, I'm not naive enough to think that like anytime you make a documentary, whatever you choose to put in is the narrative you're creating. I know that much. But I'm I'm just saying in this in this TV show, it's like it's just like uh, this bloke. Uh, in interesting background, th- thankfully he speaks English. Uh, like uh, comes from Zimbabwe, South Africa, got a concussion. Tells everyone he lost his edge. None of his teammates say it. His coaches don't say it. So I'm like, that sort of sounds like a confession to the cameras that works really well for this TV show. Like, yeah, maybe it's true. But maybe, maybe it's true. But like. The fucking interesting bit about living with the lions is where Telfer is going like, "What do you bottle it or whatever?" Like, you know, <laughs> you're hating. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that that's the, what makes it real. Yeah, the, you know? the, the living with lions had so many of those, so many of those interesting parts. For me, those were always like it wasn't so much that like, the thing that I found interesting was when Telfer is practicing his speech for Alton when he's giving his speech. He's saying, "This yes. is what I'm going to yeah, say." Yeah. Uh, so. And, and or when he's he's himself and Geech are sitting up in the stands and he's fucking mouthing off the South Africans who are mouthing off at him and Geech are all leaving Jim. <laughs> like, <is laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And there's other bits like I I've always enjoyed the the team building stuff beforehand where they talk about how you're going to react to being dropped, how you're gonna. Um, but that's the that's the biggest one. But you know the sort of they break them up into groups. They they go up and write their stuff on the whiteboard. And you sort of think to yourself, Jesus, they've structured that so well that the discipline is self-imposed mm. rather than it coming from a coach. Like it was, it was, it was a big move because, you know, what if it didn't go, like, what if that didn't work? You know, what if, what if I, I, I don't know, because it works so well, I can't really imagine how it wouldn't work. But then you go, why doesn't everybody do this? How did you end up in this situation with this team in particular where pretty much there's so many guys got picked for the test team who you wouldn't have expected to get picked for the test team. Like Jason Leonard didn't get picked for the test team. Um, you wouldn't have thought that Jeremy Davison was going to get picked. You wouldn't have thought that Paul Wallace was going to get picked. They went looking for Neil back. Uh, you wouldn't have thought that Robert was going to get picked. Um didn't think that Dawson was going to be a star. And like, I mean, th- this this series is 20-something years ago. I mean, my favorite movie is, among others, um, but I've had to choose one, is When We Were Kings, oh, which is just sorry, yeah. absolutely epic. Now, that relies on the most charismatic or one of the two most charismatic men of the 20th century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Norman Mailer is obviously number one, according to Norman Mailer. So, um, but nonetheless has so many incredible moments in it and follows just the show. Um, but like the Mike Tyson doc, like there's a Mike Tyson movie. Yeah. And the thing about Mike Tyson movie is I've only seen it reading about Diego Maradona, uh, the Diego Maradona book that you got in like Argentina that like, is not released over here. And reading it, you just sort of go, Maradona and Tyson are at the center of the world. Everything revolves around them. Like for most people, we engage with, you know, we engage 
with other people in the world. We have our own narrative going on in our head where we're the most important people. But like you're, you're sort of your background characters, really, whereas they are just at the eye of the hurricane. Every, everything, everything that's going on around them is going on because they are there. They just distort normality. And it's incredible. And it's, I guess if, if you don't have that distortion, are you kind of struggling with it? But like you said, Hoop Dreams was, was, was a great talk. It was a great talk. And those guys certainly went dis- were distorting reality. Yeah, so I, I, like I sort of, once you said, once you were texting me and going, this is terrible, like I haven't watched it. And I, so I sat down to watch it and I, I, I got about like, you know, this isn't any sort of claim to fame or anything, but I got about 25, 30 seconds into it. I was like, oh, I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> so it just, it may be not for me. Um, but listen, it's not for me. That's the thing. I'm like, I'm allowed to have my opinion. I'm like, I, when I made it, post about it on the platform x um formerly known as twitter yeah i uh included a link to a youtube which is free by the way you can watch the whole of living with the lions in one youtube link for free not behind a netflix paywall and uh you can buy from there to here for 3.99 and i was like if you want to get interested in in like rupee and know a bit about like its history and the interesting stories about it those are both amazing. And like from there to here is such an easy read. It's so interesting. And like. It is an interesting book. I love that book. Yeah, like that, I mean, that was just my. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm glad I got to rant about that. No, you, no I, I didn't think it was around. So maybe yeah, it was. Voice your opinion very well. Um, there are other teams in the. I thought you spoke very well. <laughs> there are other teams <laughs> in the Six Nations. Yeah, I don't know who the fuck I did a Welsh player to haven't even picked George North. I know, like, their captain is a nipper, a big, tall nipper, um, who plays for Exeter. But, like, they're so short. Bad, bad Leon Brown is, is named in their team. It's just a huge turnover of players. It's, like, it's pretty staggering. Who's, who's in the Welsh team? Is Mason Grady in it? Is Rio Dyer in it? Yeah, he's playing right wing. It's uh, Winnet, Dyer, Watkins, Tompkins, and Adams. Uh, oh, I know Watkins and Adams, in of the, course. And then Costello and Davies, halfback, uh, Domachowski, Elias, Brown, Jenkins and Beard, Botham, Raffle, and Wainwright. So it's... That's a tier two team. Yeah, pretty much. It's not... A, a, I don't know if... Like that's my honest opinion. Um, that's a tier two team. Like they, they are not going to do well in this tournament. They shouldn't do well. It'll, it'll. It won't. You know, it, it's an interesting one. Don't have enough quality. In that I thing. think from the point of view that Gaddy, you sort of go, God, like I mean, Gaddy's been around for so long. He's, you I mean, go, he's a great coach, and he's a great coach. You go, does he have? Is he going to miss? Like, is he is he going to miss the freshness that you need? Is he just going to go to a sort of a formulaic or is he going to manage to get the best out of this group of guys who just don't have the star power that they had a few seasons ago? Don't have the talent. Not but sorry, sorry, don't have the, sta- the talent, yeah. When I say star power to myself, I went, that's not the right description. Don't have the talent that they had a few seasons ago. Or, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, Ireland France just dwarfs their fixtures. I... Um, I'm of the opinion that 
opening the Six Nations on a Friday night is a poor use of the one Friday night slot, which I think should be reserved for the middle weekend because, for starters, we have a bank holiday on, on the Monday anyway. But in a larger perspective, I think it's nice to start off with the tradition of the Saturday early lunch or whatever, 2 p.m. and 1 at 5 p.m. and then a game on Sunday. That seems to work for me. The reason you have the Friday kickoff in the middle of the tournament is because with that rest week, excitement has kind of ebbed for a second. And also, if you put it on that week, it means you don't have to worry about turnaround times for anyone, like a six-day turnaround or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just... And then on the last weekend, obviously, you're not going to do it. So, so I just... I feel like... I don't know. The whole tournament is shooting its bolt by going with uh, France versus Ireland, which is, I can't see a world where it isn't a championship decider. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I mean, I certainly think that given that Ireland have a bank holiday and they want to play a Sunday fixture, certainly when Ireland have three games, uh, they should definitely have the Sunday fixture on the in, on, in Dublin in the first weekend because it's a bank holiday the next day. So all the sort of the arguments about Sunday fixtures are out the window. Like everyone's off. Um, people have had, people can fly over on a Saturday and go home on a Monday. Like for traveling fans, it's still a day's holiday. Most people come over on a Friday to have to take it off. Um, so I think definitely that one's missed. Um, I'm, I haven't, I haven't really thought much past Friday. I'm just, I'm, I'm very excited to be going to the match. Yeah. I have to say, I, uh, I just am aware of the fact that we have, in this uh, even year, we have the two big aways. And I feel like uh, on Saturday, we're going to be either going, it, like, we've just got to make sure we can salvage this tournament by beating England in Twickenham. And I think England are improving. And otherwise, we'd be like, we can win a Grand Slam here. If we beat France tomorrow, we're going to be thinking about a Grand Slam. Yeah, I think I was trying to... How do I phrase my question? Have Andy Farrell's Ireland become so consistent or so consistently successful that expectations are completely different for the Six Nations than any one preceding it? Because, you know, last year when they were number one in the world, we had the two big teams at home. So you're kind of conscious that those uh, odd years are the best opportunity to win a Grand Slam. But I'll just go back to my question. Yeah, like, I mean, is is Andy Farrell's Ireland so consistently successful that it's changed your expectations for the tournament? I think um, there's going to be a... The que I think the biggest question is at this tournament is are England raising up to meet the level that Ireland and France are at? Because I think the, the two quarterfinals that were played on the side of the draw where Ireland, France, New Zealand and South Africa played were two of the best games of rugby I've ever seen. They were astounding quality. And the teams in the other quarterfinals, like I know England gave South Africa an absolutely massive rattle in the semifinal. But, uh, but the conditions suited them. Like, it pissed rain. And th this is the thing with the kicking. Like, Borthwick's tactics looked to be completely vindicated by how close England got to South Africa. 
But South Africa had played an epic test match the week before against the home team, and it absolutely bucketed it out of the heavens. Like, it, it suited anti-rugby that day. Wells gave South Africa a great rattle in the semi-final in 2019, and like South Africa just set out not to lose those games, do nothing that could possibly risk them losing. And well, they're pretty close to losing against England. Yeah, and quite close to losing against Wales like four years before that. That game was ridiculous. That game was tight. It's not bringing it up. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, they recognise in that one that it's like, there's not, they they played such a terrible game. Like, in, it, they had to counterpunch against, they also, France gifted them points against, uh, in their quarterfinal. But they had to, they had to counterpunch against France. They had to punch back because they're conceding points. Um, and then in the final, there's a different scenario there with the sending off, etc. But our England, England are still losing players. They're not getting enough. Like they're they're losing players even like during during the last two weeks through injury and stuff. Borthwick is not having an easy time of getting the team he wants on the pitch. Yeah, I I think the. There's elements of the selection with England where Owen Farrell making it clear that he's just like, I've had enough of this shit. Um, like it makes it easier for, for them to, to... Turn the page? Yeah. Um, I think Finn Smith looks really promising, kind of out half, that will suit a more typical English game than Marcus Smith will. Um, I think Marcus Smith is emblematic of what English rugby writers want England to be, and maybe some English rugby players want England to be. But they should like they should look to be Northern Hemisphere, South Africa. I've said that before. They should look to play kind of puke rugby, but like with a you know really sharp cutting edge at the end of it. Yeah, with like really fast wingers and a ten who boots over points. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Finn Smith looks more like Finn Smith. His game against Munster, he looked like such a complete player. He was really impressive. Uh, sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, just, I mean, just to, to wind back to what I was saying, I was just like, are England going to be, like, we rolled over them in that, like, uh, decider, and we didn't even play that well. We were kind of like, ooh, fluffing our lines for, for 40 minutes, and we were still miles ahead of them. Um are they going to write, are they going to go listen we're actually like post this season where the clubs are going out of business and obviously people are a bit anxious about things eddie jones is sacked halfway through it they go to the world cup have a good have a good world cup and now their clubs look stronger they're more refined i think england are going to get better and it's going to be tough for us to beat them i think that england team looks good i like mitchell at scrum half, I think Jamie George is a very good selection at captain because he plays in the forwards. He he, he can play 80 minutes uh, and he's always going to be close to the ref being a hooker. And he comes across really well all the time. He, he never moans. Uh, he's always up for the fight. Um, I told you, and Chesham's a good combination and they have pace in the back row with Underhill and Earl. Like, there's... I'm really encouraged to see, uh, like, two open side flankers picked because... Number sixes are now pretty much uh, second rows. Yeah. And like it's because of Peter Steph to Toit and you can understand like with somebody like Ryan Baird, it's it's gone that direction. But like having the 
the pace that Underhill and Earl have and the tackling ability and that sort of close to the ground jackling is such a threat. Like I, I don't think the French back row have that. Aldridge's a magnificent player at eight, but I, I, I would I would rather have Underhill and Earl than Kroos and Olivon, mm -hmm. just personal preference. Um, I just think from Ireland's point of view, it's... I remember going to the, the match in 2019 against England in Lansdowne Road, fully expecting us to hose them. And we got shellacked. And we had a terrible, like the rest of the tournament was terrible. And sort of thinking we'd, per, you know, we'd perfected rugby because we'd beaten the All Blacks and we're only going to get better. And just like rudely being awoken to the fact that we weren't going to get better. And that, oh, I kind of think it's hard not to be disappointed if you're Ireland, like unless you win the Grand Slam. And that's going to be the biggest challenge for Farrell, I think, is that is that management of expectations having been on that incredible run of winning 17 matches, having given the All Blacks a very good game. Not that necessarily like we're going to fall, but it's it's just, it's it's maintaining that standard. And I guess with that, that would sort of explain to me one of the reasons why he kept such a small panel or he convened such a small panel the first time around because he didn't want the sort of the distraction because I'd say he must recognize that it's kind of difficult for this to be anything but a disappointment. Like Ireland see themselves pretty much on a par with France. Like, as you know, we're three point underdogs away, and I think that's a bit much. Um, but that that's quite quite top. They're, they're pretty heady expectations, yeah. so it, it does it does set you up for disappointment. Well, we've, um, we've lost so few matches. People, people, people. Uh, <laughs> most rugby Irish rugby fans, like you know, can you name our loss before? New Zealand? Yeah, we lost to New Zealand in, New Zealand. New Zealand in the yeah. first test. In yeah. June 2022. Yeah. We've lost one game in 19 months. Um, so we don't lose very often. When you lose a game, and we played, like our loss against New Zealand was a narrow loss in an absolute belter of a game. And people still feel really sorry. I'm still writing about, maybe still as a pejorative word to use in this, but they're writing about the disappointment of the World Cup. And w when you lose the game, you get all these sorts of different narratives that crop up that you have to deal with if you're the head coach. Um, because journalists are, have to write so many more articles than they used to previously write. Uh, and they sort of entertain articles that they previously wouldn't have you know, expected to. So um, I think you're right, Andy, that it's, it's it's gonna be difficult like a, a four out of five four out of five wins and winning the the triple crown will be uh would in my mind is is sort of what i would be looking for i think we're gonna have a hard time beating france and france i just think it's difficult to do i think there's a strange je ne sais quoi that comes to playing in france where you typically don't play as well as you normally do on your home patch, you make more mistakes. And that, whether that's Leinster, who I've often seen lose in France every time I go to France, Leinster lose. Um, or whether it's Ireland. I think it's it's sort of exposed. It's, it shows those sort of the stressors. Mm. And those get exposed. And you see things in players which you didn't expect to see or don't often see in them. And very, very good players. And you go, oh, that's, that's an issue for him. 
Um, so I think that there's unusual, hard to document, hard to put your finger on what what exactly it is. But those away games in France are very difficult. I'm sort of I'm excited to see the Italians pick two sets of brothers, not just because the novelty of two brothers in the team, but I I like the look of little Garbisi when he played for the twenties, and I didn't really like Garvey. So I think like having the two Garbisis play halfback uh, brings a brings a novelty to it. Like it's it's really cool. I remember the Hastings playing, mm. um, but sort of close to each other in that sort of centre fullback, and then the Canones are good rugby players. Yeah. Um, and the Italian team is pretty pretty experienced, pretty well balanced. Um, I' curious as to what sort of coach Caseda is. I guess I think Kieran Crowley did a very good job at the Italians, but I think the Italians do better with a Latin coach. So I think the appointment of Caseda is is positive. Um, I think the Kiwis just don't get the mentality. Um, yeah, I say that, that again. One of the few things that I taught from that, and again, they didn't show you much. I came out of that looking at Kieran Crowley, going, "We have to play better," and I was like, "You don't have to play better. You have to beat the other team." Like I think the Italians have been concentrating far too hard on trying to play rugby well rather than win a fight in so many of these games, and like. They just need to win the games rather than play good rugby. I think that that would that would do so much more for them than being like, oh, our stats are good. Like it doesn't matter. You just need to get into a scrap with Scotland, turn it into a shit game, and win, and score more points. And that's what they need to do to to go. And I think Crowley would probably be like, I'm an intelligent coach who's here to burnish my reputation and get another job after this. Like, and he's like, like, oh, we're not doing it well. The training's not going well. You see these comments. The, the few bits where you can sort of see him grumbling about it. I was also surprised he did everything in English, but I guess he doesn't speak Italian. Um, yeah, I just think the Italians need to like concentrate on trying to win games rather than trying to play rugby well. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I guess, so I, I guess we're wrapping up. Each tournament is a living, breathing thing. Uh, it'll have its own dynamic. Like if, if the Italians do win a few matches and get that infusion of confidence, get to sort of know what it takes to win... Uh, it will really change the dynamic of the team. But you'd say the same for Wales because like hardly any of them have played any like test rugby of any seriousness. England are a great team when their chests are out. So and kind of for Ireland the only way is down is is the danger. Like it, it's a very experienced team. You just don't know when the legs are going to be found out on Aki and Henshaw in particular, as good a defensive combination as they are. But that said, it's a very powerful pack and forwards win matches. So, roll on. Play, Play. 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 Play.